you can uh, turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 8, Matthew chapter 8 this morning. We're right in between uh, the chapters we just finished, Matthew chapter 7, uh, a couple weeks ago, and uh, we want to kind of set the, the tone for what we're going to be having in the coming weeks here in Matthew chapter 8, uh, and so we have to kind of set the kind of the environment of what's happening at this time in the Gospel of Matthew so that we can best understand the text that we'll have for us this morning. Chapters 8, as we begin this new kind of section in Matthew, chapters 8 through 12 are probably some of the most critical chapters to understand in the Gospel of Matthew if you're going to understand um, the message of Christ. They're very uh, foundational to understand what's going on in this Gospel. And in this section, uh, Matthew records nine of the many miracles that Jesus performed while he was here on earth to show his uh, deity power, his divine power. And so those miracles, you might say, are kind of his credentials to back up who he said he was. And uh, the sad part here is we read through Matthew chapter 8, and I would, I would encourage you in the coming weeks to read Matthew 8 through 12 and get the whole context of it. But in, in chapters 8 and 9, after these miracles take place, the sad part is the religious leaders of the day, the Jewish leaders, basically conclude in chapter 12 that Jesus is of the devil. <laughs> and that's their conclusion. And Matthew basically shows us that Christ did everything he could possible to manifest his deity to these religious leaders of his day. And yet they just kind of turned their back on it. And as a result of that, we see in Matthew chapter 13, the beginning of the Gentile church. He realized that the Jewish leaders of the day were not going to accept the message. So he began to start the church as a, as a broader entity. Um, now, verse or chapter 8 really begins with, you might call it a triad of miracles. There's three miracles that we'll be looking at this week and next week. This week we're just going to look at Matthew uh, chapter 8 verses 1 through 4. But there's three miracles in chapter 8 and it's kind of a, uh, a triad, a first triad of, of these sets of miracles. And it seems that what Jesus does is he performs these miracles and then he gives some teaching and then you have the response of the people. And uh, that's just kind of the, the pattern that's laid down here. But they were to be credentials, they were to be proved that he was divine, that he was who he said he was. He was the Son of God. And so this first section here in, in Matthew chapter 8 of these divine miracles, we have to understand that basically it's, it's leaving off where chapter 4 and chapter 5 left off. It's picking up where they left off. If you go back to Matthew chapter 4 and just look at this uh, text, with me in verse 23 of Matthew 4 it says and Jesus went about all Galilee teaching in their synagogues preaching the gospel of the kingdom and healing all kinds of diseases sicknesses among the people then his fame went throughout all Syria and he brought they brought to him all sick people who were afflicted with various diseases and torments and those who were demon possessed epileptics paralytics and he healed them and it says in verse 25 great multitudes followed him from Galilee and from Decapolis and Jerusalem, Judea, and beyond the Jordan. And then look at what it says, very interesting, in the beginning of chapter 5. It says, And seeing the multitudes, he went up on the mountain. 
And then we went through 5, 6, and 7. And it was the Sermon on the Mount. And he taught the Beatitudes and all, all, the, all the richness we got out of that. Well, now we're back to basically earth, you might say, because in chapter 8, verse 1, it says he comes down from the mountain. So he's healing people before his sermon. He's healing people after his sermon. And we're right here at the point after his sermon where he begins to heal people once again. Now, remember what he taught while he was up on the mountain. It was not necessarily a popular message. He basically took the religious leaders and their beliefs of the day and he turned them upside down. Over and over again, we hear Jesus saying, you have heard it said, he tells his religious leaders that he's, he's, he's sharing with, but I say unto you. And so what he's saying is, look, you're doing it this way. You got it all wrong. I'm going to set you straight. That's basically what he's saying. And that's kind of what the word of God does. It's, 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 it's a standard by where we're to be made straight. I was, had the opportunity to go listen to uh, Dr. David Jeremiah on Friday at a pastor's breakfast. And he said, you know, there's two responsibility the pastor has when he's kind of giving out the word of God. First of all, it's to use the Word of God to comfort the afflicted. That's what we're encouraged to do. But he said, on the other hand, we're also to take the Word of God and we're to afflict the comfortable. (laughs) And that's so true. And sometimes we see on the Sermon on the Mount, these people were afflicted by, by Christ's words. They weren't always comforted. And Jesus never, like the other rabbis of his day, he never went and, and kind of consoled with somebody and said, okay, next part of the sermon, what do you think would go good here? What should I use here? What, what should I say here? He never did that. See, the rabbis of Jesus' day, that's all they had was their tradition, their oral tradition. And so when they would do a teaching, they would basically look at what everybody else taught and they would get up and teach what everybody else taught them to teach. Well, Jesus didn't do that. And we know that because at the end of chapter 7, look at what it says in verse 28. It says, when he ended all these things, the people were astonished at his teaching. In other words, his teaching blew their minds. They couldn't contain themselves. It just blew them away. And then he says, why? In verse 29, he says, for he taught them as one having authority, not as the other scribes. So he was a different brand of teacher. All the other teachers would come and kind of say what you wanted to hear and make you feel comfortable and cozy, but Jesus didn't do that. He came along and he shared the truth with people, and sometimes the truth hurts. Well, if you were a religious leader in the day of Jesus, you would have some very pointed questions because basically your whole religious life was turned upside down. Everything you believed in, everything you thought to be true, Jesus, in one sermon, blew it out of the water. And so you probably would think they sit there and say, well, you know, who is this guy that he's saying these things? By what authority does this man speak? He's speaking as one I've never heard before. Why should we believe him and not our teachers? Well, we come to chapter 8 and chapter 9, and that answers that question. Jesus knew they were answering, asking those questions. And so he said, okay, I'm coming down off the mountain. They're going to need some evidence that what I say is true. They're going to need some evidence that I am who I said I am. And so he begins to heal people once again in a a miraculous way, in a way that only the power of God could do it. 
Well, there's four things right off the bat before we even get into our text that we see here about Jesus as he's healing these different individuals throughout chapters 8 and 9. There's four things that I want you to see. First of all, he begins at the lowest level of human need. The lowest level of human need. Now, I know that life consists of a lot more things than just physical need. But you know what? That's kind of our lowest level right there. You know, when, when your big toe hurts or your thumb hurts or you've got a sore throat or your body aches or you're sick, it kind of, it just affects everything you do, every way, every, every, the, the way you think, everything. And Jesus started at this lowest level of human need. He treated people with physical problems. It's neat to know that Jesus' ministry didn't just dwell on the spiritual things. He was also concerned about people's physical needs. And we see in this first set of miracles, he confronts human disease. In the second set, we're going to see that he confronts more spiritual problems, demon possession and other things. But in this first set, he confronts human disease, human ailments, physical problems. And it shows, really, that he was sympathetic toward the people that he was talking to. Secondly, I see here that he was compassionate when he responded to their appeals. He was compassionate. In each case, in these three miracles that we see here, this first set in chapter 8, in the first miracle, you see the leper coming and saying, Lord, if, if you're willing, you can make me clean. In the second miracle, Jesus agreed to heal the centurion's servant, saying, well, I will come, and I will heal him. In the third one, basically, if you look at the parallel passage over in Luke, you see that friends of Peter's family requested Jesus to come and to heal Peter's mother-in-law. And he did. In all three cases, we see our Lord responding to the appeals of the hearts of the people. I mean, he could have just said, tough luck. I don't have time for this. But he didn't. He was compassionate. Third thing we see is that he acts on his own will. Although Jesus is compassionate and he's sympathetic, we have to also understand that he is sovereign. We serve a sovereign God. And in each case, in each one of these healings, he acted on his own volition. In each one, in verse 3, it says, I will be clean. In verse 7, it says, I will come and heal. In verse 15, it says, and he came out and he touched her hand and the fever left her. Each time, Jesus is acting on his own will. Nobody's telling him to do anything. The fourth thing we see, he kind of introduced this chapter and these healings is that he graciously approaches the lowest in society. He does so graciously. In each of these miracles, Jesus touched someone who was really considered to be the lowest of the low. The first one, a leper, we're going to look at that this morning. And hopefully when you leave here, you'll understand a little more accurately, how low a leper was on the social class of Jesus' day. He was way down there. Secondly, he dealt with a Gentile, Roman soldier. And then thirdly, he dealt with a woman who was also down there. Now, I know it's not that way today, ladies, so I'm not saying that. But back in that day, the, the women were down there in the social class. That's just the way it was. But see, our Lord didn't care about that. And see, he interacted with such individuals in such a way that when the Pharisees, the religious leaders of Jesus' day, looked at Jesus, 
dealing with these people, it blew their mind. They, they stepped back and said, what is he doing? He's dealing with a leper? He's dealing with a Gentile? He's dealing with a woman? Jesus always put his emphasis on the humble, and he always put his emphasis on those who were outcast, it seems. In fact, the first person that Jesus ever revealed his messiahship to was a harlot in Samaria who wasn't even Jewish. And that was a shock to the religious leaders of Jesus' day. From the very start, Jesus made it clear that he was going to establish his authority by using some miraculous power. The unfortunate thing is, the religious leaders of the day saw everything that everybody else saw. They saw the miracles take place. They saw all this stuff happening. And yet they still concluded, they turned their backs on him. And at the end of chapter 12, it says that basically they concluded on their own that, well, this man, he's doing these miracles, but he's doing them by the power of Beelzebub, the prince of demons. He's not doing them by the power of God. How sad. They hated him so much, they thought to kill him, the Bible says because he upset the religious security so much. They refused to accept his display of abundant divine power. I mean, you stop and think what Jesus did. He cleansed a leper. He healed a servant. He raised up a woman. He controlled the sea. He cast out demons. He made the blind to see. He crippled the, the... Uh, the the crippled to walk, the dumb to speak. He healed every kind of sickness that literally was brought to him on the spot. And yet, in the flow of all this, we see basically that the religious leaders of Jesus' day said, "Eh, he's doing it by some other power. It can't be by the power of God. Well, let's look at our text for this morning. Now that we've kind of set the groundwork, we know where we're at, coming down from the mountain. We just heard the Sermon on the Mount. And it says in chapter 8, verse 1, When he had come down from the mountain, great multitudes followed him. And behold, a leper came and worshipped him, saying, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Then Jesus put out his hand, and he touched him, saying, I am willing, be cleansed. And immediately his leprosy was cleansed. And Jesus said to him, See that you tell no one, but go your way and show yourself to the priest and offer the gift that Moses commanded as a testimony to them. We see this first poor soul, this wretched man, this man who has leprosy. The first thing I see here in verse 1, it says, When he came down from the mountain, great multitudes followed him. See, there was a certain attractiveness of our Lord Jesus Christ. People were just attracted to him for a variety of reasons. But they were attracted to him. As a matter of fact, it says great multitudes followed him. Now history tells us that basically he came down from the mountain near probably the village of Capernaum after he'd finished preaching his sermon. And all these people continued to follow him. Not because they loved him. Not because they believed necessarily that he was the son of God. I'm I'm sure some of them did. But probably most of them didn't. They just wanted to see, man, what's this guy going to do next? What incredible thing is he going to do next? Who's he going to heal next? 
What's going to happen next? And so you have this huge crowd following the Lord Jesus as he comes down off the mountain and he starts to perform these miracles. And they, they knew this was going to happen. That's why they were, they, were, they were there. They never heard anybody speak like him before. And now he's going to show them some evidence of who he is. Well, it says there, when he came down from the mountain, great multitudes follow him. Verse 2, and behold, a leper came, or approached, is the, the literal reading of that. A leper approached him. Now, what's unusual about this scene, you have to understand, in that day, the disease of leprosy was one that you know, required them, as we're going to see, to stay away from people. You know, you, you would not go to a crowd of people if you had leprosy. You were ostracized. They actually had camps where lepers would live outside the city. You were totally ostracized from all contact with anybody, unless the other person had leprosy. But this word leper is, is really, in the original language, it has the idea of scale, like a scale on your skin. And it was really used in the Bible to describe a variety of skin diseases. It wasn't just the leprosy that we know today as Hansen's disease. I'm sure that was then, back there, they had that. That was probably the leprosy that this man had, from what we can tell. But we're not for sure. And so all we know is we can look at modern-day leprosy and say, well, this must have been something what it was like, because this disease is kind of formulate and different pathologies happen over years you know they take on different uh different uh effects and things on the human body but when we look at modern day leprosy we can kind of get an idea of what this individual who had leprosy was dealing with but it was a horrible disease either way and it was probably contracted by them by their children when they were in egypt some people believe. And so they brought it back into the promised land. And as a result of that, God gave them, and you can read this on your own, Leviticus chapter 13, strict laws concerning leprosy. Because it could, it could you know, devastate a whole nation if you let it. And so it's, it's kind of an uh, interesting thing that he gave all these laws in, in Leviticus 13 and 14 on how to deal with somebody who's a leper, how to identify leprosy, all these things. But you have to understand, the modern-day leprosy that we have today um, really can only be uh, infected into 10% of the world's population. Only 10% of the people in the world today can actually even contract leprosy, the Hansen's disease that they know it today. So 90% of people are, you know, they're not going to get it whether around a leper or not. Now, that may have been more so in Jesus' day, because in Luke 4:27, uh, Dr. Luke says, basically Jesus said that many lepers were in Israel at the time of Elisha, and it goes on. So obviously it was a widespread problem. And he gave all these instructions God did on how to identify it and everything in Leviticus 13. And so a person who had this kind of leprosy was instructed and it says in Leviticus 13, verse 45, it says this, As for a leper who has the infection, his clothes shall be torn 
and the hair of his head shall be uncovered, and he shall cover his mustache and cry, unclean, unclean, as you go throughout your daily routine. And there's some modern day medical studies that say that certain types of leprosy, the more serious kinds, can actually be communicated to someone through the air. Or through even touching something. So it was, it was kind of important to understand that because God's word says from the very beginning, hey, you know what, if you have this, you need to cover your mouth. Because it could be, they even had laws in the, the Jewish religious belief system that if you had leprosy, um, you know, you were not to come any closer than six feet to someone. So if you were a Jew, you were never to go closer than six feet to someone who had leprosy. That was on a calm day. If it was a windy day, it was 150 feet. Sounds silly, but you know what? If it can be communicated through the, the, through the air, that makes sense. And certain Jews even considered lepers to be dead men, walking dead men. They had no respect. They were at the bottom of the bottom of society. And so you have to put yourself into that situation. And the disease itself is a horrible disease. The modern, um, basically the skin becomes a very kind of hard, shiny, you know, it's just very uh, open sores can develop. And I don't want to gross you off out, but basically fingers end up falling off and your, your, your face begins to kind of look like, they say like a lion. It, it just gets all bunched up. The skin gets bunched up and wrinkly. Horrible disease, very disfiguring. There's even an odor that goes along with someone who's a leper because of the open sores that you're dealing with. It's a disgusting disease. Now, today, we can control that disease with medicine, okay? But it can't be cured. It can be controlled. So it's kind of an interesting uh, disease when you look at it. You can go on the Internet and look at all the gross pictures and everything. But, you know, it is. It's disgusting. And so you can imagine back then when they didn't have the treatment they have today, to have this disease would definitely made you an outcast in society. Well, when they isolated these lepers, they didn't want other people to contact the disease and everything, and so they were very ostracized from society. And when you look at leprosy, you can actually even look at leprosy in a way that it's an it's a illustration of sin. It's a, it's a physically, physical walking illustration of sin. Because leprosy is an ugly, incurable, contaminating disease that separates an individual from the rest of society. And you stop and you think, what's sin do? <laughs> sin is an ugly, incurable, contaminating situation that separates man from God and makes him outcast in his presence. And so it's very clear that in Jesus' day, they had this horrible disease, and you see that this leper... It says in, in verse 2, he came and he approached Jesus. Just totally uncalled for. Well, I want to look at this leper first. And I want to look at four things concerning the leper. The first thing is when it says that he approached, it, I really see here that the leper had a certain confidence. He had a confidence. It wasn't a self-confidence. It wasn't a self-confidence. And you, you say, well, how do you know he had confidence? Well, he must have because he was a leper. He's supposed to be out, being outcast from everybody, being totally separated from any. And if he did come into a group of people, he's supposed to be going, unclean, unclean, I'm here, get away. 
Six feet, windy day, 150 feet, just to let you know. This guy didn't do any of that. He didn't crawl up behind a bush and kind of, Jesus, I'm over here. I got leprosy. I want you to heal me. He didn't do that. Now, I mean, if you picture this, these crowds of people, hordes of people around Christ pressing up against him, you know, what's, what miracles he's going to do next? All of a sudden, this leper's in his face. And see, in those societies, they knew who the lepers were. They dressed a certain way. They had to, according to the law. They had their, their, their hair a certain way, their head a certain way. They wore certain clothes. And you would know just by the smell a lot of times if someone was a leper. This guy, all of a sudden, is standing face to face with Christ. And all these people are surrounding him. Can you imagine what's happening? This crowd couldn't get back quick enough. They're probably, hey, dude, you know, six feet, come on. What are you, what are you thinking? That's a windy day, 150 feet. They're backing up even more. This guy had confidence that Christ could do something about his situation. Because normally people in this condition would be so socially devastated, they would never show up in a crowd. They lost all sense of, you know, I mean, any kind of a self-esteem. This guy, basically, he lost all sense of shame. He lost all sense of social stigma. And he said, you know what? My need is so great, I don't care what people think. I don't care what's going to happen if I show up in a group. I don't care anymore. I'm going to get my situation dealt with. And I know there's only one person that can deal with it. So he came in confidence. Secondly, you look there in verse 2, it says he came, but he also, it says he came and he worshipped him, saying, Lord. He not only came in confidence, but he came in reverence. See, we don't know much about this guy's appearance. We don't know necessarily what he looked like. I mean, I'm sure he wasn't, you know, dressed in dapper clothes and everything because we kind of know some of the clothes he wore. But we, we don't know outside, you know, necessarily, you know, were his eyes blue or wh- who knows. But we know what's inside him. We know what's in his heart because it says that he came and he worshipped, saying, Lord. See, and you have to paint this picture in your mind. In Jesus' day, you had religious leaders who put on the finest of clothes and robes and gold and, and, and trim their mustaches a certain way just so they'd stand out in a crowd. So everybody, when they walked down the street, would say, whoa, look at that guy. He's so religious. He's so pious. He must be a Pharisee. He must be a Sadducee. He must be one of the religious leaders. Oh, I bet you he's spiritual. Look at the way he walks. That robe just flows behind him. And we've seen Jesus confront that kind of hypocrisy over and over and over again. And here, this poor leper, he gets right up in Jesus' face. And the Pharisees are backing up quickly. And they're thinking, what is going on here? Look at this guy. Look at how he looks. Look at the smell. Get away. But this guy, he came with reverence. It says that he worshipped him. The idea is is that he bowed down before him. He fell prostrate before the Lord. Now, we don't know if if this leper got information about Christ before. Maybe he was back in chapter 4 watching Jesus do all these miracles. We don't know. From afar, obviously, because he couldn't be in a crowd. 
But somewhere along the line, his heart was touched, and somewhere along the line, he decided, i got to go worship the Lord. I have to be in contact with the Christ. He came and he worshipped in a way as men come before kings and God. He came with a worshipping heart because he knew he was in God's presence. Let me ask you a question. When's the last time you came to God with a worshipping heart? When's the last time you came into his presence with a sense of reverence, with a sense of awe, with a sense of, I can't believe I'm in the presence of God? We just accept it. Go to church, get the Bible, get dressed up, go to church. There's no awe, there's no respect, there's no reverence. Hope the music's good. Hope they sing a song I like. Hope the pastor doesn't go too long. Hope he says something that's funny. It's not about that. It's not about that at all. And the Pharisees of Jesus' day were blown away that this leper came up and did this. Not because they respected who Jesus was. They just thought... Okay, wait a minute. This guy doesn't have this right to do this. And it says here that he worshipped him. He didn't come and say, Jesus, will you heal me? And I'll worship you. He didn't come and say, Jesus, will you make me better? And then I'll worship you. It's interesting to me that he worshipped him before he sought anything for himself. Before he sought anything for himself, he exalted God. See, beloved, that should be our hearts, not only on Sundays, but every day of the week. We should come to God in reverence, just the fact that we can come into his presence without being burned up. The fact that the Bible says the very God lives within us. Ponder that for a minute. That's a good thought to think about when you're off doing your little secret sin that you think nobody else sees you doing. Stop and think, you know what? The Bible says if I'm a Christian, God lives within me. That'll cool your flesh off real quick. That'll that'll help you put things in perspective. He came with reverence. Before he sought anything for himself, he exalted God because he had a worshiping heart. Thirdly, he came in humility because it says there, a leper came, worshiped him, saying, Lord, if you are willing, (laughs) if you are willing, he didn't demand anything. He just said, Lord, which basically is saying, God, I know you're sovereign. I know you're the Lord of the universe. He wasn't using the idea that, hey, well, sir, fine, sir. It's not that kind of Lord. No, it's, it's the kind of Lord that has some uh, power behind it, some reverence behind it. He didn't speak his will as if Jesus had to comply. He didn't try to affirm his own worthiness or his own kind of uh, righteousness before God. He didn't go to Jesus and say, you know, hey, wait, you know, you've healed all these other guys back in chapter 4. Before he went up on the mountain, now, you know, it's my turn. 
I demand you heal me. I've been sick. Look at me. I have leprosy. I know you can do it, so do it. He didn't do that. He only said, if you wanted to heal me, Lord, I know you could. I'm not saying you have to because you're the Lord. I'm not the Lord. So I can't demand anything from you. I don't know about you if you watch much TV or if you've ever gone to some of these crusades, these healing deals. That's a far cry from what you see going on in some of these follies that go on in the name of Christ. When people are told to demand a healing from God. Who are you to demand anything from God? None of us are worthy to demand anything from God. This man, however, he made no such claim. It says that he worshiped first, never asked for anything. One commentator, Lenski, says that this leper was, a, a, was willing to accept Jesus' choice for him to remain in his living death. And if he had done so, he probably would have still worshipped him. I believe he would have left the presence of Jesus if Jesus said, hey, well, nice to meet you. Okay, see you later. <laughs> we'll move on. Never healed him. I believe this man would have still worshipped Christ. Because he didn't come for a healing. He came to worship him. And also, not only look at his confidence and his reverence and his humility, but also his faith. Look at what he says. He says, Lord, if you are willing... You can make me clean. You can heal me, Lord. That word can there, you can do it, is, is, is the word that we, a Greek word that we get the word power from. And it's not just some little power for a life. It's like dynamite power, superpower. That's his faith. It means to have super, super power. And this guy was full of leprosy, according to Dr. Luke. That's what it says. And yet he was still convinced that Jesus had the power. Not that he was demanding, but he could have healed him on the spot. And like I said, maybe he saw Jesus heal some other people. Maybe he knew that could happen. Somewhere along the line, God did a work in this man's heart. One commentator said this. When a man says, if you will, you can do it. He illustrates faith at its highest point because he knows that God is able and yet he still submits to his sovereignty. See, it's one thing to go into the presence of God and say, God, I know you can heal me. Now heal me now. I demand it. That's not faith. That's just being obnoxious in the presence of God. But when you go, God, you know what? I know you could straighten out my situation. I know you could change this. I, can, I know you could do that. But God, whatever you do, I just want your will. I just want to do what you want me to do. And if that means I'm healed, this leper was like, hey, great. If it doesn't, that's okay. There has to come a point in our time where we're okay with what God is doing. That's the highest level of faith. So he came with confidence because he had a deep need that he couldn't meet anywhere else. He came with reverence because he saw God. He knew who he was dealing with. He came with humility because he realized that God was sovereign. And he also came with faith because he knew that Jesus had the power to heal him. 
But look at how the Lord responds. Look at how the Lord acts in this situation. There's no fanfare. There's no big, you know, carnival going on here. It says in verse 3 that Jesus put out his hand and touched him. <laughs> now remember, you've got to put yourself back in that time. You have these, all these people around who've already backed up to six or 150 feet and they're watching this thing from afar. And they're probably thinking, what in the world? I mean, what is going to happen to this poor leper? And it says, Jesus put forth his hand and he touched him. And I bet you the crowd just went, what? There was a gasp. He touched a leper. Leviticus 5.3 prohibits that we touch anything that's unclean. And we all know that lepers are unclean. But a touch from someone clean is exactly what this poor leper needed more than anything else. I find it interesting that Jesus did touch him. You think he had to touch him? I don't think he had to touch him. He could have just said, yeah, okay, well, you know, you kind of ruined the show here, so be clean, get, see you later. <laughs> he could have done that. But he did. He reached out and he touched him. He was sending a message to someone. I mean, he could have had lightning and thunder and he's all clean, boom, you know, smoke and fire, and then boom, the guy's clean. But he didn't do that. He just reached out and touched him. No spectacular dramatics here. And look at what happens. He reached out and touched him and said, I am willing, be clean. And then it says, immediately his leprosy was cleansed. Immediately his leprosy was cleansed. I think he picked a leper because, I mean, leprosy is a, it's a devastating disease. You know, I don't think this guy was coming up to Jesus saying, you know, well, you know, I kind of have a side ache here. You know, you think you can heal me? <laughs> or oh, I got this problem in my neck. Or I got this or I got that. No, a leper came who visibly was distraught. His body was full of leprosy. Fingers fell off, toes missing, his face disfigured, open sores over his entire body. And it says immediately he was clean. Now that doesn't mean that immediately, you know, he jumped in a shower and cleaned himself up. It means immediately. Whatever fingers were missing, they were back. Whatever toes were missing, they were back. His face was back to normal. The stench was gone. The open sores were healed. It bothers me when I hear people say today, yeah, you know, I went to this healer and I was healed. And uh, it was great. But, you know, I got to go back. <laughs> what do you mean you got to go back? Well, you know, it kind of wore off or whatever. I don't know what they're thinking. When God heals you, beloved, trust me, it's complete. And you know what? Even as believers, we're a little too frivolous, I think, sometimes with the idea that God divinely healed us or heals other people. Now, I don't want to step on any toes here, but we have to be very careful about what we claim to have as a divine healing. 
remember after I got this thing cut out of my back, this cancer, whatever, and remember, I think it was one of my relatives, you know, well, you know, obviously, Lord, the Lord didn't heal me. What are you talking about? I mean, I had to go to a doctor, had to be diagnosed, then I'd go to another surgeon, and he had to take a knife and cut this thing out of my back. Then they had to stitch it up, wait for the stitches and all that. That's not a divine healing. What are we thinking? If I would have had a divine healing, I would have never had to go to the doctor. God would have said, be clean. And I would have went back to the doctor and they said, you know, this is kind of weird. It was here. You know, we took a biopsy, but it's not here anymore. Something happened to you, miraculously. That's a divine healing. Let us not confuse the idea of divine healing with God sometimes even you know, in a miraculous way, equipping doctors to do things today that just blow our minds. I'm not saying God doesn't gift those people and ultimately he's not the, you know, he heals us and all that. I understand that. But let's make a little distinguishment here between what we should call a divine healing. Because when Jesus healed somebody, trust me, they were healed. There was no if, and, or but. There was no, okay, well, you're healed, but you've got to take this medication now. Just take three of these every day, and you'll... No, none of that. It was complete. It was total. They were totally made whole. And I don't know about you, but I'll line up any of these so-called faith healers today, Benny Hinn or whoever else, line them up on a stage and bring a leper up and say, okay, do your stuff. You don't see that, do you? Wonder why. Wonder why it's always something in the liver or something in the neck or old soreness of the back. I mean, we have to be careful today, beloved. I'm not worried about those guys. I'm worried about bringing dishonor to the name of Christ, to the name of our Lord. So Christ, when he healed somebody, trust me, they were healed completely. He says in verse 4, And Jesus said to him, See that you tell no one, but go your way, show yourself to the priest, and offer the gift that Moses commanded as a testimony to them. Do you ever think what the first evidence should be that Christ has entered your life? What's the first thing? What's the first evidence that should be in your life as a result of Christ coming into your life? It's pretty simple. It's obedience. It's obedience. It's obedience to the things of God. And that's what he says. That's what he's telling him here. He says, now that you've been healed, what's he say? He says, go and do what the law says. The law required him to go to the priest and show himself to the priest. Be obedient to the law of God. That's what he's telling the guy. He said, I healed you, now go be obedient. And it's interesting because you can go back to Leviticus chapter 14 and you can read about this very thing. In the unlikely event, and it was very unlikely that a leper would ever be healed, this didn't happen back in those days. But if it did, God in his word, and I think specifically for this reason that we're reading today, 
in Leviticus 14 said basically, you know what, if somebody is healed, if a leper is healed, we need to verify it. Because you can't just have a leper going back into a crowd if they're really not healed. Well, who's going to verify it? Well, we'll have the priest verify it. So if a leper's healed, he has to go to the priest. And the Bible says in, in Leviticus 14, first of all, he had to take two birds. He'd kill one under running water. The other one, he was to drip in the blood of the first one, along with cedar wood, a scarlet cord, and hyssop, which is the kind of plant they had. And then they allowed it to fly away, picturing the resurrection. And then the former leper washed himself in his clothes. He shaved. He waited seven days to be reexamined by the priest. This is somebody who's thinking they're healed, a leper. Afterwards, he shaved his hair again, his head, his eyebrows. He sacrificed two male lambs without blemish, one ewe lamb, three-tenths of the measure of fine flour mingled with oil and about a pint of oil. And then the leper was to be touched on the tip of his right ear, his thumb, and his big toe with the blood and the oil. Kind of a weird little ceremony, but that's what God required him to do. Upon final examination, if the cure were true, if the priest looked at this guy and he was completely whole and he was healed, he would write him out a certificate. And he would say, you know what? You were a leper, but now you're healed. Here you go. And that was their ticket, beloved, to get back into society. Because it was all verified. There was no danger of being you know, infected by this person anymore because they were genuinely healed. You say, all right, that makes sense. That's what the law of God says. That's why Jesus says there in verse 4, see that you, you know, go and go your way, show yourself to the priest, offer the gift that Moses commanded. But what about this little part in here? Because it's kind of bothering me. In verse 4, Jesus says, he just healed this guy. He goes, you know what? Don't tell anybody about this. Don't tell a soul. Don't tell anybody. Just go your way. Make your way down to the temple, the priest. Do your thing down there. Get your certificate. Why? Why would Jesus say that? Weird. It's kind of odd. I mean, you think, man, this is incredible healing. All these people solid. He's supposed to go and tell no one? Some commentators believe that, you know, Jesus didn't want all these people still following him. He wanted to get some work done. Well, the, that kind of, you know, it doesn't work out because the crowd was already there and healed other people. So that doesn't really wash out. Other people believe that Jesus didn't want to be exalted during his time of humiliation here on earth. So he didn't want anybody to know about this. But the very purpose he's doing these healings is to demonstrate his divine power. So that kind of washes out. There's some other, you know, some people believe that they didn't want people to think that he could, you know, and there was legitimate reason for this, that he was the one that was going to come and overthrow the yoke of slavery that they were under Rome, and he was the one that was going to conquer the Romans, and that's what they believed, really. A little later on, we see that. In John 6.15, the people tried to do that very thing. But you know what? The Bible tells us why he said that. It says, And Jesus said to him, See that you tell no one. Go your way. Show yourself to the priest. 
offer the gift that Moses commanded. Why? What's it say at the end of that verse? As a what? As a testimony to who? To them. As a testimony to them, to the priest. That's why he wanted him to do that. He wanted to go his way, not say anything. You just go to the priest. You explain what happened. You want that certificate. See, you have to understand, if, if the leper would have done what Jesus, by the way, he didn't. He wasn't obedient. He was disobedient. But if he would have been obedient, here's what would have happened. He would have left the presence of Christ. He would have went down to the temple. said, hey, I'm here. Uh, you know, in Leviticus 14, the law of God says that if a leper is cleansed, you remember me? I mean, I look a little different, but I'm the same guy. Um, I've got to come to you and be examined. And the priest would have said, well, okay. Yeah, that's what the law of God says. Okay, let's start the process. You know, get the birds. You know, they start doing the little thing there. Seven days passed. Well, you're still, yeah, you're still holding up. Still looks good. Okay. Eight days. Okay, yeah. All right, let me fill it out here. This is incredible. Certificate of cleanliness. By the way, how did this happen? Let me tell you. Dear priest, while all your religious leaders are around, you know the guy that you're accusing was Jesus? Well, he's the one that healed me. Now I got evidence to prove it. You know what? The guy didn't do that. <laughs> he left the presence of Christ. And it basically tells us over in Mark, 45, Mark chapter 1, verse 45, that he became so excited that he basically failed to obey. And he went out and he shouted to everybody, Hey, look at me, I'm healed. He, dis- he disobeyed what the Lord told him to do. You say, well, okay, so it doesn't make much sense to me, but remember in, in Mark chapter 2, verse 9, Jesus said this, which is more difficult, to heal disease or to forgive sin? Remember he asked that question? Which is more difficult, to heal disease or to forgive sin? Let me ask this morning, do you know why he said that? Do you know why he asked that question? See, in doing the kinds of miracles that Jesus did, he was not only revealing his power over physical disease, but he was also using those healings as illustrations of his power to deal with sin. That's exactly what he was doing. He was using it as an illustration of his power over sin. And I think this morning when we read here in Matthew chapter 8, verses 1 to 4, yeah, we see a leper being healed, that's great. I think there's a deeper message here. I think it's really almost like we're looking at a picture of someone being saved and the process they go through. Leprosy basically is ceremonial uncleanliness. It's a demonstration of sin. And as I said earlier, just like leprosy, sin is pervasive, it's ugly, wretched, it's communicable, it's incurable, it makes you an outcast in the presence of God. And in spite of that, we see this leper coming with confidence. We see because he's desperate over his leprosy, he has nowhere else to go. You know, that's the first step, beloved, in how a conversion takes place. People don't get saved unless they're first desperate. Over the disease of sin in their lives. 
we kind of leave that element out in our evangelism a lot of times. See, this, this man came having lost all fear of being ostracized, having lost all shame. He didn't care anymore. And he was willing to barge right in the presence of the living Lord in front of all these people with a disease. You just weren't supposed to do that. But he had confidence that Christ could heal him because he was overwhelmed with his disease. When we come to Christ, are we overwhelmed with our sin? Are we wretched over our sin? Coming to Christ is not just getting on some bandwagon. And turn over the leaf, become religious, and go to church, and yeah, I'm call myself a Christian now. Coming to Christ is saying, you know what? I don't have anywhere else to go. I stand here condemned as a sinner in the presence of a holy God. I don't know what else to do. I've tried to do it my own way, tried to go to church, tried to work my way, tried to be a good person, tried to do this. I end up back in the same sinful place. I don't know what else to do. You have to have confidence that Christ can forgive you. And this leper came worshiping, and I think a true conversion occurs when desperate people come worshiping God not seeking things for themselves. So many times we come to Christ for the wrong reasons. That's why there's so many people on the broad path. Because they never grieved over their sin. They just came for the forgiveness. I mean, it's kind of a no-brainer the way we explain the gospel today. Do you want to go to hell or do you want to go to heaven? Do you want to have fire licking your toes or do you want to walk on streets of gold? Well, let me think about this. I don't know. This leper came worshiping, seeking God's glory. He wanted God's glory. He just didn't want a healing. There needs to be a recognition of the majesty of God. A true sense that, you know what, we're in awe in His presence. And we see this guy, he came humbly. And you know what? True salvation always comes to those who are humble. If you come to God thinking somehow you're doing God a favor, you're not saved. I'll just say it, you're not saved. If you think that somehow when you come to God that, you know, you have some kind of a a will involved in this whole process, I hear people say all the time, yeah, I remember the day when I chose Jesus, I chose to be... What are you talking about? The Word of God is very clear how this thing works. And it doesn't start with us. It starts with Him. It starts with Him divinely setting His love upon us even before we were here. There's no self-will. There's no self-centeredness. There's no sense of worthiness. There's no acknowledgement of rights or claiming this, or claiming that. 
You don't come into the presence of God with that kind of a heart. Because last time I checked, that kind of a heart is a proudful heart. A pride-filled heart. And God hates it. He'll listen to someone who comes humbly. The Bible says it's the meek who inherit the kingdom of God. And finally, this leper came with faith. He believed that Jesus could heal him. You know, you can't be saved without faith. You can't be saved without faith. It's impossible. So in regard to salvation, you'll be touched, you'll be cleansed when you come to Christ in faith. And once you're saved, you know what God wants you to do? You know what He wants you to do more than anything? Just be obedient. Just live out what God tells you to do. You know, we've really done a lot of harm, I believe, over the years in our evangelism things, you know, in our discipleship things, because we take new converts. We take somebody who comes to Christ. And I've done this myself. I'm guilty of this. You know, you need to go to tell everybody that now you're a Christian. Go tell everybody that you're a Christian now. I mean, are we supposed to confess the Lord before people? Sure. But it's funny that our Lord didn't tell this guy to do that. He said, don't tell anybody. Don't you tell a soul. You go to the priest and you get the certificate of cleansing. If you do it, do what I tell you to do. God will be glorified. See, it's better, beloved, to say nothing and let the world see that Jesus truly changed your life by their own examination than to run around saying, I'm a Christian, I'm a Christian. And then just give them kind of ammo to dishonor God and say, yeah, that guy's a Christian. Yeah, he says he's a Christian. You see what he does. See how he acts at break the water fountain and all, you know, blah, blah, blah. Jokes he tells. A living testimony can be more effective than a verbal one. better just to be quiet and let the world see that God has changed your life than you go out and tell everybody that he's changed it and then not be able to live up to the expectations. Here's this man running around saying, Jesus changed my life. He healed me. He healed me. He healed me. You know, this leper. And there's people that know he's a leper. And there's probably somebody along the way that says, you know what? You are that guy. You are that leper. And you do look different. You're saying Jesus healed you? Yep. Um, I have a question for you. Sure. Where's your certificate? Um, well, I'm going to get to that. <laughs> See, he should have done what Jesus told him to do. Go get the certificate. God would have been honored. God would have been glorified in a whole different way. Somebody would have said, well, why aren't you down showing yourself to the priest? If you're truly, you know, the law says this, and, and now you're saying that he healed you, but... I mean, your actions aren't really living up to what you're saying. A disobedient life in the midst of a testimony is meaningless. A testimony can be rendered invalid. We're called to be obedient. And in the midst of our obedience, God will manifest this transforming power in our lives. And our lives will speak louder than our words. I'll leave you with this illustration. Martin Luther, he had a dream. And he had a dream that he was in his house 
And in this dream, he looked out the window and he saw the Lord Jesus Christ walking down the pathway to his house. And he looked around at his house and he goes, oh man, this is not the time. Jesus should be coming to my house. I got clothes everywhere. They're all over the couch. I got food still out from last night's dinner. The dishes are a mess. The carpet, oh, it's just a wreck. The whole house was a wreck. So frantically, like most of us do when someone knocks on the door and we're not expecting them, you know, trying to clean everything up. And Martin Luther in his dream, he's trying to clean everything up. He's trying to get the clothes floating. And he said, the harder I worked at it, I looked around and the dirtier it became. There was more clothes and more dirt and more dishes. And finally, the knock came on the door. And I knew it was the Lord. And I, I had to go answer the door. And he says in his dream, he went to the door and he opened the door. And the Lord said, do you mind if I come in? And Martin Luther stood there and he said, no, Jesus, if, if, you're, if you're willing to come into a mess like this, come on in. And he stepped back to let the Lord go. And as Martin Luther turned to follow the Lord into his own filthy house, he looked and it was a mess. There was not one shirt that was out of place. There was not one dirty dish anywhere. Everything was perfectly in its place. See, folks, sometimes we make a mess of our lives and then we try to straighten them out. And the more we try to straighten them out on our own, the more messier it gets. I'm here to tell you this morning, if you'll just submit to the Lord Jesus Christ, if you'll just open your heart to Him, He'll make your life immaculate. He'll make your life clean. He'll forgive your sin. He'll give you the Holy Spirit to comfort, to guide, to establish you as a new creature in Christ. Father, we thank you this morning for your word. We thank you, Lord, for this example of this man who was filled with leprosy. His body was beyond disrepair. And yet, God, in your miraculous power, he came to you. And he came to you because he knew you were the only one that he could come to. I can't help to think that there might be some here today, some here this morning, who need a fresh touch from you. Who need a touch from you. Lord, there are people here this morning that have tried to do it their own way. And it, it doesn't work out. There's people around this room that can testify to that. And there's people also around this room that can testify that when you yield your heart to God, when you come to Christ in faith, in reverence and in humility and with confidence, He will change your life in a radical way. In a way that only He can. And you will see the glory of God in your life lived out on a daily basis. Not because of who you are, but because of who He is and His power and His majesty. Father, we come to you this morning and we pray that if there's anybody here that has yet to put their faith or trust in you. Lord, I pray that they would cry out to you. Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. Lord, I don't understand all the details. 
but I do understand that I am a sinner and I do need your forgiveness. I do need your grace. And there's only one way to get that. It's through your son. I want to come to him this morning in faith, believing that he will forgive me, that he will set everything in order in my home, in my heart, in my place. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. We ask you to bless the rest of our day and our week, Lord, that we would be able to share not only with our lips but with our lives the message of the good news of the gospel of Christ, that we would see lives transformed as a result. We ask this, Lord, in Jesus' precious name. All God's people said,